Hello and welcome back to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. I am Tegan, that is Yoram. Hey. We are here again to talk about plants and plant molecular biology and all of those wonderful things. It's been a long time, Yoram. Yeah, it really has been a long time. Um, we've been busy. I last year. Well, we took a break, in fairness. Yeah, we, we, we took a break um, and last year was just an insane year. The, like the last three months... I I barely remember the details, but I remember I was in so much stress, especially in like late November, December was very, very bad stress wise. So I took all January to recover. Uh, yeah, I think that's the, the <laughs> summary is there was some stress. Um, I went to Australia. That was quite nice uh, for yeah. the first time since the pandemic started. So that was kind of a bit of sun and sea and all of those things. Um, in any case, we are back. I have had the song Guess Who's Back back again in my head for the last two weeks while we were thinking about coming back. Um, <laughs> we're probably going to be recording episodes every fortnight from here on out as opposed to weekly, which is what we were doing before, just because we, we don't want to die again. <laughs> I think that's part of it. We want to have busy and productive lives and also be able to do this in a more sustainable way, I think, Yeah. the plan. Yeah. yeah, and I think also the, the content will adapt slowly to whatever we feel like works yeah. better for us. And we already changed it, I think, in the last couple of episodes that I barely remember what we even talked about. We constantly change it because we're like, this is not quite working. And then we try and change something. And Yeah. yeah. So it's all it's all in the flow. It's it will be it will still be fun i guess it will it will continue to be fun for us and hopefully for you as well and we'll be talking about plant stuff continuously and yeah. i think that's pretty much it oh yeah the other thing that happened i had to like touch stuff on the technical side on the website because stuff broke and to fix it i could either like do a quick fix or like properly fix it and i decided to properly fix it and that's why the website looks a little bit cleaner and fresher and new it's not completely different. It's still very similar, but like some stuff has changed. So, but it's it's sort of I find it exciting to look at it now, and it makes me want to do more with the website again because now it looks different. It's like I'm very simple minded like that. No, I think I think that's like the key difference between you and I as people. You're <laughs> one of the qualities I very much appreciate in you, Yarm, is you actually do it properly. <laughs> You're like, you read the manual, you watch the YouTube videos, you learn how to do that. Um, I am the one who just like paints over something and hopes it's kind of okay. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. That's what we've been doing for a while. But then like some PHP update came and broke the site and it wasn't accessible anymore. And uh, fortunately, somebody realized that and, and pinged at us on Twitter. And I fortunately also looked at our Twitter account. And so I could figure out what was going on. Um, so there were a lot of coincidences coming together, ma- working their magic so we can actually <laughs> fix the website and now have a nicer looking website. Thank you to the pinger. Yes. Shall we do some planty things? Yes, let's do some planty things. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. The first story that I uncovered um, from... Like, it's nice that we had to break because then there's lots of stuff that happened that we can now dive into. <laughs> what I found is that they found, and they is researchers, um, found a new species of plants um, that is a parasite. That was the word I was looking for. A parasitic plant that doesn't actually do its own photosynthesis. And it's a plant that we've 
talked about a very close relative of. Uh, we talked about the ghost pipes. Um, mm -hmm. I think multiple times on the show and also on the blog, we talked about these weird little, I mean, maybe you want to describe what they look like, these ghost pipe parasitic plants. Um, a sad mushroom, maybe? <laughs> maybe like a candy cane? Or... I think they look like goth mushrooms because they look like they have a little bit of a white fabric on them like, a, and then they have this flower that's like drooping like a bell. Um, to me, they look like, like a vintage uh, goth uh, dress. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's white, but it also has that kind of translucency look to it, which I guess is why it has this name yeah. of being ghosty. Like it really has a ghostly look. Yeah, um, and so the the ghost pipes is mon uh, Monotropa uniflorum, mm -hmm. and now they found uh, Monotropastrum humile. Um, And, uh, or relative of that one, the one that they found is Monoprastrum uh, kirishimense. Um, and you can tell already from name, uh, Monotropastrum compared to Monotropa, they are related, but they are not directly, like, it's not sister species, but but very close on a phylogenetic tree. And it's one of these stories where they thought it's... Um, It's one species, but then they had a closer look and saw that they had distinct flowering times and then they had uh, analyzed them further and found that the new one that has a sort of pinkish hue, uh, but otherwise looks pretty much like a ghost uh, pipe, uh, is its own species. And that's just another one of these like weird little parasitic plants that don't do their own photosynthesis, but instead leach on the nutrients of other plants. And also what this makes these um, ghost pipes or in general like these monotropa and monotropastrum plants special is that they hide under the leaf litter so to study them it's you have to find them first and that's not always straightforward because they are similar to mushrooms sort of in the undergrowth they don't really need access to light they just have to be available to whatever their pollinators is i think it's not completely clear how these are pollinated under the leaf litter um but yeah so that's a new pink parasite that looks like a relative of ghosts. it's sort of like the the streamer cousin uh, in old pink to the ghost pipes where the ghost pipes is like proper goth these are like the modern type goth that are like pinkish and bubbly uh but still sort of goth I, i'm just like trying to describe it and i don't have a very visual imagination but now i'm just flamingo 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 <laughs> like there's nothing else that comes into my head i mean they've got kind of a little flamingo head poking out of the leaf litter as well so i think that's yeah that's what we can go with here but yeah it's not it's not an imaginative description is it <laughs> but yeah but it's uh it's it's like a little bit like a flamingo standing on one leg or having its little flamingo head um poking out um yeah it's a flamingo plant Speaking of pink things, I actually have a story also on pinkness, which was shared with me by one of my dear friends. So thank you to him. It was a publication that came out in the Plant Biotechnology Journal um, at the end of last year, in fact. And it's by Lee and colleagues, and it is called Pink Cotton Candy, a new dye-free cotton. So I think you can probably already guess a little bit from the title what this is about. Yoram, do you want to have a, a little... A cotton that's naturally pink and you don't have to dye the cotton to make it pink? Is it that it? Um, sort of, depending on how you define naturally, I guess. <laughs> so, 
I mean, the backstory is that when we get cotton, I mean, cotton, the ones that we grow on the plant, they're usually basically a whitish kind of cream color, right? Um, and then we bleach them and color them all different colors to make fabrics. But as we've discussed, I think before, all of these dyeing processes have some issues. You know, they're like, have toxic byproducts. It's not great for the environment. It can be like a bit unideal. So we can bypass this by just directly having colorful cotton. That's the idea. And as as you mentioned, and actually I didn't know this before, there are naturally colored cotton varieties. Um, there are different species that already have um, some faint coloring. Actually, four of the different species um, of cultivated cotton do have colors, but those cottons don't tend to produce a lot of fiber. So, mm. you know, the ones that we do grow that are optimized for making tons of cotton don't have the colors and the ones that do have the colors, they're not great yield producers. Um, it's also like the colors themselves can be quite variable from bowl to bowl, like this little fluffy cloud that the cotton is. Um, and they're also unstable. So the colors might not remain throughout the, the process of actually getting the cotton and, I don't know, treating it and weaving it. I want to say weaving <laughs> it. Um, and I also didn't know that there has been some attempts to breed cotton. So there have been people who have tried to breed the color side of the cotton. I mean, obviously we know there's been cotton breeding, but this is like specifically focusing on that. But it's still, it hasn't been optimal. So you've got these kind of problems with yield still and still problems with the quality of the color. So the authors of this paper, the scientists decided to simply put the color in, um, which means we're doing some genetic modification. What we're doing is we're putting new genes into the genome of the cotton, and these genes make enzymes which make a colorful product. Now, Yoram, if I told you color pink, what would you think we're going to be making in the plants? Astaxanthins. Astaxanthins. So astaxanthins is something we probably talked about on the podcast before. It's um, the coloring that you find in salmon. Mm -hmm. um, that is one pink. Are there any other sort of pinky ready colors you can think of? Well, I don't know the the molecules, but I know that um, tobacco has pinkish flowers, so they do some pink pigment. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I have no idea what it is. So, I mean, the common sort of reddish pinky colors I would think of maybe is anthocyanins, um, which are what you sort of see often in plants when you put them under too much sunlight. Yeah, but aren't they also like more purple, bluish? Yeah, they may be purple. They're more in that shade um, yeah. of pink. But it's it's kind of in, in that color range. Yeah, maybe but if you dilute it, then it turns more pinkish, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if you get really stressed out plants and you grind them up, the, the liquid ends up being yeah. kind of a ready pinky color, right? Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, so not quite purple. But this is actually not that anyway. Um, what they did use is... Red cabbage, dead. maybe. The, 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 the pigment in red cabbage can, depending on the pH, change its color. So you can make like purple, blue and bright pink, depending on what pH your your fabric has or like how you fix it, probably. I think that might be anthocyanin still. Could be, yeah. Not sure. Um, no, but we're in the right family. If you think of a vegetable that's a very pinkish red color. Um, Radishes. Uh, uh, keep going, keep going. <laughs> you pickle it. If you're Australian, you put it on burgers. If you're European, you use it to make sugar because you don't know uh, about beets. sugar cane yet. Sugar, there like we go. Beetroot. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's actually yeah, that a group. makes a lot of sense. It's like commonly known as a dye, commonly known as a natural dye. Commonly known as the red thing. Um, so there's actually, yeah, there's a group of pigments that falls into this category called beta lanes. And the beta part of beta lane basically comes from beetroot. Beetroot's um, scientific name is beta vulgaris, um, which is just like common beet, I guess. And these betalane pigments are found in a range of different plants. Um, it's actually found in the group of plants called Caryophyllales, um, which it's a pretty huge, chunky group. It's got cacti, it's got carnations, it's got amaranths, which we've talked about before, um, ice plants, a lot of carnivorous plants, and of course, our beloved beets. Um, this pigment is also produced in some mushrooms, although we're not super sure what they're doing with it, um, as well as some bacteria, it seems. But by and large, it's found across quite a lot of um, species, like 12,000 plant species that have produced these betalanes. And betalanes come in different types. So you can get either sort of yellowy-orange betalanes, and they're called betaxanthins. And then you can get the ready violet ones, which are the beta cyanins. And I guess that's what we care about because yellow and orange is kind of a common color when it comes to plants. Like you can you can do that with carotenoids, um, but pinks and purples are a little bit more or reds and, reds and violets are a little bit sexier, I would say. Mm -hmm. Because of the fact that it is like very abundant and it's, you know, natural, there has been a lot of interest recently in using these beta lanes as natural food dyes. Um, I saw one paper that was looking at how well beta lanes bound to and survived when you put them into soya yogurt um, to see, you know, does the, the pH of the yogurt or the chemical reactions of the yogurts make it change color or do you get a nice, you know, ready color? I don't know. People want to eat red yogurt apparently. Um, but it also, these beta lanes also have sort of antioxidant properties, which as we know, whenever there's the word antioxidants thrown around, people get super interested in Yeah, it. it's a moneymaker. <laughs> yeah, for health reasons. Fun fact is that also beta lanes are the things that might turn your urine or poop red if you have a certain um, genetic thing that makes it difficult for you to break them down. So... That's the culprit, in case you need to know. <laughs> yeah, it's always scary for parents when you change a diaper and suddenly it's like dark red. And then you think back, oh, what did we eat? Oh, yeah, there was some beetroot in the food. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Yes, and okay. And it's all good. Mm. Plants and pipettes now with 50% more children's stories. It's <laughs> literally <laughs> all I have left now in my life is anecdotes <laughs> about things my children did, things my children ate, things my children pooped out again. Pooped. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> that, there will be a lot of that. <laughs> so one of the, like, back to the betalanes, one of the things I found kind of weird about this is, as I said, they're in about 12,000 plant species. But as we did mention, when we think of ready pinks, we sort of think of anthocyanins. And weirdly, the plants that have anthocyanins, that make anthocyanins, do not make betalanes and vice versa. They seem to be, like, somewhat mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And it's not really clear why. So when beta lanes were first discovered, it was kind of assumed that they were basically similar. You know, they had a, a similar evolutionary process and they were sort of similar pro um, structures, but they're quite structurally different. And it's it's unclear why some plants have decided to go with the beta lanes and some plants have gone with the anthocyanins. And similar with that for like the actual function of what they're doing in plants. So 
in in many cases they are just giving color like flowers like to be colorful um there's some benefit to like attract pollinators and stuff but they also do seem to have these kind of antioxidant properties anthocyanins are commonly called like the sunscreens of plants so they help protect the plant from um harmful rays and you know other antioxidant properties that can help um clean up reactive oxygen species so like um sort of bad nasties sort of in the cell i guess and there seems like there's probably some overlap between what the beta lanes are doing and what the anthocyanins are doing but also we're not 100 percent sure what's happening with the beta lanes and maybe they're better than the anthocyanins in some ways and also why are they in fungi and some bacteria it's a little bit of a an open question from what i could see but is the fabric now is the cotton now pink and is it stable is my big question because i know like <laughs> if i stain stuff with beetroot i can usually remove most of the stain sometimes like some faint shadows remain still pink but it's mostly water soluble yeah so <laughs> that's a good point we should probably go back to the actual paper and discuss what they did there so they decided to produce these beta lanes within the fluffy ball of the cotton um, and to do that, it's it turns out that making beta lanes is not a super complicated pathway. It's derived from um, amino acid synthesis pathways, um, and it just requires a few extra enzymes. So the scientists took some enzymes from beetroot. Um, they also took an enzyme from a very bright pinky red flower, which is Mirabilis jalapa. It's called the four o'clock flower or marvel of Peru. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I hadn't heard of it, um, but I looked it up and it's, yeah, it's pretty. It's kind of pinky red. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so they took a couple of enzymes from beetroot and an enzyme for that, and they put them together into the plant. And they did that two different ways. One way was to use this kind of 35S promoter. And this is an element that you put before your genes um, to make them express really high levels everywhere all the time. It's like, turn it on, turn it full on, turn it on everywhere. That's what 35S means, yeah. basically. So they did that. Um, and then they also took the kind of slightly more cautious and... Um, like 35S is a sledgehammer approach. And then they also took the the slightly more like selective tool approach and they used a an element that only encouraged these enzymes to be expressed... Um, in a certain time and a certain place. So they basically wanted it to be specific to the development of the cotton fibers, both in space, so they, they were within the cotton fibers, but also during the mid to late stage of the cotton fiber development. So you start to get that accumulation um, in the late stages. And yeah, with that, that was kind of the success story. This non-sledgehammer approach was the, the better outcome. They They did get some leakiness of of expression which means that they wanted to get pink only in this cotton fluffy bit but they they did notice that there was a little bit of purpliness in some of the older leaf tissue it's pretty common when we try to express things specifically they do tend to not be a thousand percent secure and always in exactly the right place in the right time Mm -hmm. um but they did get a really nice fluffy little ball that is pink and beautiful and looks like cotton candy. Um, thus the name of the paper. So success was had. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I yeah, I just still wonder if <clears throat> I mean one of the big issues with, with dyeing fabrics is always fixing the dye on the fabric. 
aha, so Yoram has wisely <laughs> gone to the next stage. And this is a part of the paper. Um, it's a brief communication. It's a very short paper. But they do notice that, unfortunately, despite the strong accumulation of the beta lane during the development, it then fades to light brown or pink in the later stages of the maturation of this cotton ball. Mm-hmm. So this suggests that the plants were storing it, but then it was degraded in this final maturation stage. So although they got this beautiful pink cotton candy cotton, it didn't stay pink. Yeah. So we so a little bit of optimization. We still need some chemical dyes as of now if we want pink stuff, but maybe eventually. I mean, it's. I think it's a really cool approach. I think it's a really clever approach to add dyes to your cotton and then have it dyed before you actually spin it into wool uh, and then probably chemically there is a way later on to to fix that color lock that into the fibers uh, and then yeah re- reduce the amount of chemicals that you need for for dyeing the, the fabrics because i think this is like one of the major issues that or like one of the many issues involved in making fabrics and clothes and everything is like the chemicals in the dyeing process so Mm. I I think, like, largely speaking, with this approach, you will still always get muted colors compared to what we can do chemically, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do any natural dyeing with onion peel or beetroot or cabbage or, you know, even indigo and stuff, like, it does take quite a lot of dye and you do tend to end up with something that's a little bit less vibrant than what we can get. But yeah, yeah, still nice. Yeah, but I would would take, like, a light... Like a lighter shade of pink or, or like brown no- tones or whatever they they then end up as long as they stay stable and not if i wash it five times and then i have like a whitish t-shirt that used to be pink that would be the worst case but from uh colorful cotton to colorful flowers and specifically patterned flowers i found a paper that looks at the effects of flower patterns um, because flowers do have different patterns on them in terms of distribution of color. They're not, not many flowers are not uniformly colored, and it's always been proposed that it has something to do with pollinators, as you said, like colors and flowers they mm. attract pollinators, and very often we don't understand much more than that. We just know like, yeah, it's important for the mysterious pollinator flower relationship, but in what respect we don't really know all most of the time. So here I found a paper where they looked at specifically flower patterns and what they do to bumblebees. So they created a bunch of artificial flowers with different patterns on them, um, mostly lines. Uh, so we're not talking about like checkerboard or stripes or whatever, but it's like lines that either one line that goes through the center across or several lines and then some like broken crosses um with not the, like guiding lines like something that kind of points into the center of the flower yes yeah, so, no? yeah pretty much that okay. mm-hmm. and then they had bumblebees they tracked lots of lots of bumblebees uh, and how they approached the flower how they landed on the flower and how they then went ahead and found the nectar of the flower and what they found was that the, if they, depending on the pattern that they had, and now I don't know which pattern performed the best, but they saw that uh, the, the pattern was important for the bumblebee 
to identify the flower and land on it. So by having the correct pattern on the flower, they shortened the landing time about 30%. So the bumblebee was much quicker in finding the flower and landing on it, similar to like what they have on airports with the guiding mm-hmm. lights or even the, the radio tower that sends out like a signal that can track then help then the, the airplanes to track where the airport is even in the dark and then approach it and land on it and this is pretty much what the flower pattern did but once the the bumblebees were landed they were not faster at finding the nectar so it's really just a landing property that's influenced by the flower pattern so it's not that they could land and then when they crawl around on the flower looking for the nectar the pattern didn't make a difference for them to actually find the nectar it was just a landing and approach that was faster. Uh, but this That also makes sense as with the same plane analogy, because like you can see something from above, but yeah. once you're on the ground, it's no longer that helpful. And presumably, I don't know, do they sniff it out? Like the bumblebees, are they smelling the... I don't know if they're like tapping it out with the, um, their antlers or their, their legs and then finding it, or if they're sniffing it, or it's a combination. I don't know that, but it's similar to the, the airport. You follow the, the lights until you're landed, but then a car comes with a follow me sign that then actually brings you to your parking position so it's a different system that's then coming into play sorry is it actually a car with a follow me sign yeah i don't know if it's like in commercial flights all of the time but follow me cars exist on on airports that's just terrifying that's something i i want to pretend that my air travel is a little bit more high tech than that just like no i think nowadays they they like they have they know the parking positions and have computers and stuff and then they only have a person that's um waving with these glow sticks that still exists because that's for the sort of short uh short short scale approach so they really guide them into the into the correct parking position in terms Yaram of just guided his microphone out yeah. of position with his, but, waving yeah. his little and this is something i learned from tiktok like i've seen like there's a couple of people on tiktok they like they dance around with the lights and then they also show what they actually do on work so they're standing on a tarmac and then they depending on which side they waving the the airplane knows if they have to steer left or right and then when they have to stop so that they're exactly at the place where then the gate can attach to it mm-hmm. um so that that is still sort of manual labor but i think like the the guiding to the parking position nowadays is more automatic okay sorry back to the bumblebees and guiding the bumblebees <laughs> yes. so they they quantified how these patterns help the bumblebees land but so are they like altering the patterns or are they just comparing different flowers with different patterns what was the, they, the they, process behind they that they made artificial flowers and so they changed the patterns on these artificial flowers okay i'm kind of curious how artificial it is if it's like just a, like a paper flower then or yeah i actually didn't read all of the paper for that um but <laughs> there is some there's some images where you can see the different um cross patterns so they they took inspiration from some real flowers that have a sort of five star pattern with stripes Mm -hmm. oh i see yeah interesting Uh, and then they created some artificial flowers i just tried to find the figure yeah there's i think figure five you see that they have like a regular cross like a phillips screw head then they have Mm -hmm. one where it's like a phillips screw head where you would take out a circle bit in the middle so you just have like a or like a um, What's it called? Like a target sign, like a targeting mm. thing in a in a in a scope. Um, then a little plus sign, like a little Swiss flag. Then just like one dash across and no lines whatsoever. And then they measured the approach times of the bumblebees and how they move on the flowers and quantified that. And they could find that I think the the crosses performed the best from uh, what I can see here. And yeah, but then once they landed, it's just like independent of the pattern. They probably can't 
really see the pattern once they are on the pattern. Similar, if you would imagine you're looking at the th big image painted on the ground uh, from like the first floor of a building, but then when you're standing on the ground where the image is painted, it's much harder to actually see the image because you're on it. And I imagine that's similar for the bumblebees for the flower patterns. You, you know how there's often like a trend on Twitter to describe your research in three words? How would you describe this research in three words? Flower patterns, as already two words. Flower pattern targets. <laughs> <laughs> I was going with crush landing bees or confusing bee landings. <laughs> It's I better. like the idea of like somebody having to describe that. Oh, what's your job? Oh, yeah, I confuse bees for a living. That's that's what I do as, <laughs> as a scientific research. Yeah, and they said also say in the in a summary of the paper that it also had an impact on a departure decision. So they they used the pattern again to sort of guide themselves away from the nectar to the edge of the flower so they can take off. Okay, I imagine it's for a bumblebee easier to take off from the edge of a flower than from just somewhere on the plane. But uh, that argues that they can see it a little bit from the bottom. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but so this gives us a, a little insight into why do have why flowers actually have these very distinct and particular patterns, and it's again a co-evolution with their pollinators. It's what mm. helps the pollinators land, and therefore is then a benefit for the plant as well. I have something that's not at all related to that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Um, speaking of awkward segues, uh, speaking of seeing something from above, is that good? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It depends where it's going. <laughs> don't edit that out, out at all. Um, there's no, there's no easy way to say this. We have to talk about mucus. Mm. This is a paper that I found in the Journal of Ecology. I have to mention that I haven't seen the full access to the article. I haven't read the full article, but it does sound really interesting and I will try to get around to it at some point um, if I can get around the paywall or if the authors want to email me a version. It's looking at mucilage that is produced by seeds and sort of asking the question of, but why? So you probably know already that some seeds are quite mucilage-y. Um, this is actually a feature that we kind of use as people. So if you think about something like a, a linseed, um, mm -hmm. like flax, or maybe a chia also, if you add water, they become kind of goopy. Yeah. And, you know, as humans, we now use this as our cooking. We use it for like the binding ability and it can be quite useful. But the question is, why, why would a seed want to be making so much mucilage when it's objectively quite disgusting? I my my first idea would be it's water retention. It like absorbs a little bit of water and holds onto the water for a little bit longer than if it wouldn't have that and it would dry out quicker. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, so I think that's definitely one one argument for what's working there. But this paper is actually looking at something completely different, which is whether the mucilage is protecting the seeds from being eaten by herbivores. Mm -hmm. And this basically comes down to the question of how icky is a seed covered with mucus compared to a seed not covered with mucus? And does that ickiness actually prevent? Now, I, I wonder what kind of herbivore that is. If, if it's like the small ones, if it's caterpillars and insects and bugs, or if it's like small rodents or birds. 
Yeah, rodents and invertebrates, basically, mm-hmm. is what they were looking at in this study specifically. So basically, they, this is quite a widespread phenomenon in plants that the seeds produce mucilage. It's found across different species from different um, families. So that kind of suggests that it's appeared multiple times, or at least it's like, you know, commonly been held onto as a functional trait. So when we see these things pop up, across different places, you know, phylogenetically distinct, evolutionarily distinct lineages, we can sometimes say, okay, maybe it popped up for a reason. Maybe it's not just something stupid. Maybe the plants get benefit from that. And the question here was whether perhaps having this disgusting goop covering the seeds might protect the seeds from herbivory, in this case from rodents and from invertebrates. And there's two options for this that the authors looked at. The first is whether it makes it harder for them to be seen. So I think that's quite straightforward. If you have kind of a lot of goop surrounding your seed, it no longer becomes like a clear seed object. And also the goop will sort of help the the color of that seed merge into the color of the background somehow, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then the second is whether being covered in substrate just makes the seeds a lot less valuable, which is they're icky, they're covered in in group, let's not eat them. So I made a big deal about people just finding mucilage a little bit disgusting. But part of that equation is actually the fact that if you have something sticky surrounding the seed, then things are going to stick to it. And some other things that will stick to it is sand. And again, that will also help with the ability for the seed to hide into its surroundings. So it's going to be now covered in sand and it's it's much more cryptic in its surroundings. But also, you don't want to eat something that's covered in sand. That's something that's shared by me and rodents and invertebrates alike. So nobody wants to eat sand-covered seeds. You want your seeds not covered in sand. So the authors of this study were basically trying to compare those two arguments. Is it the hiding or is it the fact that eating something covered in sand is not super great? And they did this by basically doing some manipulative experiments. They played around with the colouring of the coating of sand, um, as well as like the background, and to see if it was sort of the colouring, the hiding fact itself, or if it was the fact that it's just sandy. And basically, in conclusion, they found that it wasn't the the camouflage element it was really just that mucilage bound sand provides a physical barrier which prevents things from eating seeds so this doesn't rule out what you said about the water but it does sort of prevent present another possible Mm -hmm. benefit of why plants want their seeds to be all disgusting and goopy (laughs) maybe um another biotech um possibility for us that to avoid to avoid spraying insecticides, and we just make all of our seeds goopy, goopy weed, <laughs> mucus, corn. Um, we just have to adapt our own preference for it. I'm going with seed eaters hate slime as my three word summary. <laughs> I'm cheating because seed eaters is kind of yeah. anyway. <laughs> Seedivores is that a word? <laughs> Then my, uh, I will give away what my um, next story is. And it's um, broccoli becomes cauliflower. And <laughs> broccoli already is cauliflower. I'm not, I mean. It's, it's all the same species. Um, yes. But you, you would say like if I, if you make you a cauliflower curry and suddenly I make you a broccoli curry, you would say these are two different 
things, right? So it's, it's I would also say making, making broccoli into cauliflower is the turning wine into water equivalent of the Jesus miracle. <laughs> like, really, broccoli is the superior of the two, so I'm I not sure what know. you're doing there, buddy. I don't know. Like, I've in 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 last couple of, of months, I've had some really good cauliflower recipes to the point that I often now have cauliflower at home and not so often broccoli. Although broccoli is also very good. I mean, I also often have cauliflower at home because I buy cauliflower and then nobody eats cauliflower. So it actually just, I own cauliflower for multiple months <laughs> without eating cauliflower. So like, yes, but cauliflowers are also, I mean, okay. So for, for anyone who has the same dislike for cauliflower and a preference for broccoli, um, I have bad news. Um, global warming. Uh, oh, <laughs> researchers, that one, research, that old chestnut. <laughs> researchers found out that when the growing temperatures rise of broccoli, then it changes its growing behavior. And instead of having like the broccoli, like, it, I think it's like a, a stopped inflorescence, right? Yeah. Like it's a sort of not properly developing inflorescence. Uh, mm. But instead it grows into more like a cauliflower shape. It's still like greenish and stuff, but it becomes, it, it gets a more distinct cauliflower-looking-like phenotype. And this is a um, study from molecular horticulture. And they the temperatures that they looked at first, they were like 60 degrees Celsius uh, for the uh, growing period, becomes a regular broccoli. At 22 degrees and 28 degrees, it uh, grows like a big green cauliflower bulb. So it's pretty significant increase in, in growing temperature. Mm. But a possible increase in growing temperature depending on the region where you are and where you, when and where you're growing your your broccoli. Uh, the interesting thing about the story is, apart from the fact that maybe in the not too far future we will be only eating cauliflower because all of the broccoli turned into cauliflower, is um, the reason behind it. So they found that the underlying mechanism for this behavior is DNA methylation. So that is um, the epigenetic code, sort of the modification of the DNA, but not on the actual four letters of the genetic code, but on sort of the backbone, the modifications of that that have an influence then on how much um, certain gene sequence is read and transcribed. Um, it can upregulate or downregulate. It's very, it's it's complex. But um, it, they, they found that they had changed methylation patterns depending on the growing temperature and they could link that to the different phenotypes. So also not something that's easy to fix, not something where you can very easily then just breed heat-resistant broccoli, but it helps in understanding what's going on there. I mean, now I really want to fix climate change. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can deal with flooding and I can de deal with super dry hot summers, but <laughs> broccoli, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> Isn't it like, wouldn't it be so sad if this was like the thing that actually got politicians to, like, this was the action maker? I don't know. I think there could be even worse reasons for them. So I, if they finally would take action, I would be happy. If it's if it's the broccoli cauliflower conundrum, also a good three word title, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then I, uh, then I'd be happy. I'd, I'd be happy to take that. Like they, whatever it takes. <laughs> <clears throat> Speaking of something that's small and green, that's not bad, is it? <laughs> it's like most plants. <laughs> Shut up, Yoram. Um, so I am reporting on a publication that came out this month in Communications Biology, and it's looking at the genomic analysis of an 
ultra small freshwater green algae, which is called Medakamo Haku. This is a publication that was by um, Kaito et al. And as I said, it's from um, this month. Okay, we're back. So we've just had a big discussion about whether this species name should be more like Latinese sounding or Japanese sounding because I think it's like it's a Japanese group and I think it's kind of a Japanese based name. Medakamo? Hako? Maybe? Unclear. Let's go with Medakamo. Anyway, so this is an ultra small freshwater algae and it's ultra small in many ways. So firstly, it's just physically ultra small. It's very, very tiny. Um, the diameter of the algae, it's a single cell, is only about one micrometer across. So that's one one thousandth of a millimeter, which is very, very tiny. Um, but to put that into a little perspective, when we normally talk about single-celled algae, we have a favorite organism that we use in the lab quite often, and that's called Chlamydomonas reinhardii. And Chlamy is about 10 micrometers across. So this guy is 10 times smaller in diameter than Chlamy is even. So really, really tiny. Yeah, yeah? It's, about, it's about the size of E. coli, so a bacterium, like the standard bacterium that we talk about is uh, one micrometer so isn't that insane yeah that's pretty insane because is it a eukaryotic algae or is it a prokaryotic no, algae no, so it's it's got a it's got a it's like it's got a chloroplast i mean it's only got one of them but it's got a chloroplast so it's a proper eukaryote it's an algae it's got a chloroplast so it's basically like a tiny clammy but it also only has a mitochondrion so chlamydomonas also has a chloroplast it's got kind of this big saddle shape or u-shaped kind of chloroplast yeah, it's pretty much a chloroplast with some stuff around it yeah i mean chloroplast nucleus mm, some stuff and some little an antlers little antenna yeah um this one just has one mitochondrion so even clammy has managed to find space for a few extra mitochondrion like you tend to need a few extra mitochondrion apparently this guy only has one just really compact um, so it's small because of its size. It's small because it's like literally packing the bare minimums for its easy jet travels throughout the world. And then it's also small in terms of its DNA. So previous work where they stained the nucleus showed that it has a really tiny nucleus. And they said it looks like it, there's not there's not much room for, for many base pairs and many genes in there. So the work that is published in this paper is sort of looking at that genome and they did in fact find that it's only got 15 megabase pairs of DNA. So it's only got about 7,600 genes and to put that into context, Arabidopsis, our favorite model plant, little weed, that's got about 25,000 genes. If we look at something like wheat, it's more like 50,000 genes. So having only 7,000 is just insane. It's really really small and studying these kind of small organisms has a few different values so from the point of view of the gene size when you've got something really really small you basically have to assume that that species is traveling light which means it's ditched everything that is not absolutely essential so by looking at those 7,000 genes you can get really good clues about what is absolutely the bare minimum necessary to have photosynthetic life and then everything else is just gravy on top of that. All, all the other things those other plants are carrying around, that's like specialized gene functions and we're making pretty colors in our flowers or beta lanes or whatever. That's all this kind of extra stuff that is not required for photosynthesis. So these kind of species, these unique sort of 
ultra small genome species do have an importance in understanding what the requirements for life are. The authors, the scientists who have discovered this um, also discussed the fact that, you know, it is small. You can grow it sort of in a liquid broth. It's originally a fresh water algae. So it can also potentially be something that we might be able to easily modify and manipulate. And therefore, it might have um, a sort of function to be used as, you know, biopharmaceuticals. We might be able to um, produce things by production from these algae. So produce valuable compounds in this algae. And one of the things that they've previously noticed is that it's really strongly, it's able to really have, eh, let me try that again. And one of the things that they've noticed from previous research is that it's possible to really strongly synchronize the cell cycle of this algae with a day and night cycle, which is also really helpful if you want to like stably produce something um, and get like a mass. It's you've kind of got this in a very regulated um, system, and it's also possible to cult culture it in high cell densities to sort of have a lot of it. So there's a little bit of interest there also in this kind of um, bioproduction. Um, for things like foods, cosmetics, biofuel, all those things that we've talked about in the past of growing inside algae. But one of the things that I found kind of interesting and fascinating about this paper, apart from how special this organism is generally, is if you go down to the methods of the paper, it reads, Metakamo Haku 311, which is the strain, was obtained from the personal aquarium of Professor Koroiwa. And this is the kind of wording that you, we would see in papers in the 70s, but we don't really see anymore. You know, there's like, oh yeah, we found this species, like we just like discovered this in the field. So looking into this, I was like, what what has what has happened here? And as it turns out, the the professor is an emeritus professor, um, had a goldfish tank at home and added some some sort of rice fish, this medaka fish species. And after a while, the the water just kind of turned a greeny color. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really clear if that came from like the fish or from the water or from some other source, but he was, you know, scientific about it and took a sample of the water and then put it under the microscope and basically found out that what was in there was a completely new species. And now, you know, that was in 2015 or 2015 was the first publication of the species. So now seven, eight years later, we have all this research into this thing that just rocked up in this professor's fish tank one day, which <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, it 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 really is. Um, especially thinking that it like randomly ended up in there and most people would simply clean their fish tank. Yeah. Uh, if it gets green and and slimy, it's just, uh, time to change the water and then get rid of it. Yeah, but it's it's um, what I find fascinating is how close this eukaryote is to a being a bacterium. Like E. coli again has roughly four thousand four hundred genes, mm. so there's just like three thousand genes that make the difference between like a bacterium that's really really simple and a eukaryotic algae that can do photosynthesis and it's also small and probably also not too complex but it's um doing more complicated stuff than what e coli is doing um it's pretty incredible i guess bacteria would be offended by you calling them simplistic but yeah sure i think <laughs> it's amazing yeah 
it's so easy to transform a bacterium, so I, I have no respect for them. Like anything <laughs> that puts up a challenge if you want to change its genetic content, I have respect for. But bacteria, you, I, I don't know. You can just like smear some DNA onto them and they will take it up and do whatever is written on the that, DNA. So. That, that argument makes me want to send you a video about drinking tea all over again. <laughs> so <laughs> questions about consent being raised there. <laughs> One thing I one sorry one thing I want to quickly mention is I was actually trying to do that rabbit hole thing where you know you you read I read about this method it was discovered in the aquarium and then I tried to go to the original paper that published you know the first description of this this species and the strain and in the methods there it said it was isolated from fresh water in the outer moats of the imperial palace in Tokyo which sounds a little bit more like regal obviously i mean it's it's an imperial palace but i i now i'm not certain i i did look at another site and it had quotes from the professor and these quotes seem to confirm the finding it in a fish tank thing but i'm i am interested by the fact that there's not a match between where this was originally found in these two paper sources yeah let's go with the nicest story like let's be good scientists and stick to the nicest story (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Imperial Moat is still, I mean, an Imperial Imperial Palace Moat is pretty cool. I mean, you've, you've also been to Tokyo, like the, the Imperial Palace is, it's like a big garden park slash thing, especially the outer moats, they are accessible to the public. It's like I would go to a canal in Berlin and just because it's not around an, <laughs> an Imperial Palace, but it's still like public water. Yeah, I guess it's just like, I think it, I can understand how it was also strange to say it was found in my fish tank because like, what does that even mean? Obviously, it wasn't found, like, obviously it didn't originate in your fish tank. Like, yeah, it's come from somewhere. So that's also, I can understand I'm, why that's the question. I, I mean, maybe, maybe he's t- putting the water from the moat into his fish tank. Well, maybe the fish, yeah, maybe the fish were collected from there and they went into the fish tank and they brought some water with them. So then it's not clear if it was the fish. Yeah, maybe that's what happened. From something uh, from a very small one micrometer um, algae, which is almost a plant or something, is 30,000 times bigger. Um, I want to talk about dandelions and dandelion heads. I found two stories, actually, that are both on the topic of dandelions and their seed dispersal. Um, I, I wondered, is there like a special word for the dandelion bulb with the seeds on it in germ in germ we have löwenzahn for the when you have the yellow flower and we call it a pusteblume so mm. a blowing flower when it's uh when it has the seeds attached and you can blow on it and it flies away is there something like that in english i think it's just a dandelion head to be honest but i'm not sure yeah so then the dandelion head um has a very particular uh property and that is that if you blow at it from one direction and you don't blow too hard, then only a section of the seeds will release and fly in the direction that you're blowing and the others will stay attached to it. So if you would want to, with like a gentle blow or gust of wind, uh, remove all of the seeds, you would have to either rotate the wind around the the head or rotate the head so that they all get a different angle of wind and then actually release. And researchers figured out that there is this this effect by attaching tiny wires with super glue to each of the little seeds um particularly the puppets that's the fluff of the seed 
um, and then pulling at it in different angles. And I realized that there's like an optimum angle that releases the seed. And the difference <laughs> is between 10 and 100 times uh, is the different the force difference between the optimum angle and the worst angle you can pull it at. So there's really a, like orders of magnitude of difference of the, of the force that you need to release the seed from the heads. And that's obviously very good for the for the dandelion because it means that one gust of wind doesn't blow all of the seeds in one direction but instead um, they stay attached and depending on where the wind comes from they are released in different directions and it it covers more ground than if they would all just by the first gust of wind released in that direction Um, that's so insane that's that's brilliant that's so brilliant yeah like I, i really appreciate like the brilliance of the dandelion but also of the researchers who meticulously put like these tiny little probe wires on the little seeds and then pulled them and measured the force by pulling them in different angles and figuring out uh, what the optimum angle for these for the seeds is that's just my favorite i don't know i mean that's just incredible <laughs> yeah and the, the is that's one thing how dandelions are directing the seed dispersal dispersal but there's another thing that they have to deal with. Um, And that is not only the direction of the wind, but also the general weather, if it's humid or if it's dry. Because when it's humid, um, it might not be optimal for them to release their their seeds as far. Um, And therefore, they... Well, it's the, it's a little bit hard to say which what what came first here. But so what happens is that the puppets again, so the fluff of the seeds, they when it's when it's wet they get stickier and close up a little bit. So when a gust of wind comes, it doesn't fly as far, um, and that's not great for the plant. So what it does, it also increases the stickiness of them. Mm-hmm. So when when they are wet, first of all the the fluff is closed so the the area of attack is smaller for the wind so you need a stronger wind to get it mm-hmm. but it also stickier to the bulb and all of that together means that when it's uh, when it's wet they don't really release the seeds as easily and then when again you have a dry weather where they can fly far they reduce the stickiness again the puppets opens up and they become these little parachutes again and they can fly away um and for that they did that, put the dandelion heads in wind tunnels and with different humidities and then figured out how they they change and there's also some nice pictures there how you can see how they've they fold up like little upside down umbrellas so you know these like there's sometimes these novelty umbrellas that they don't fall towards you but away from you and this is uh, similar to how the dandelion fluff folds like it folds away from the the, the seed capsule and ha- gets a smaller surface area and therefore is harder by the wind to to be attacked and then then blown away very cool dandelions release directionally <laughs> yes hmm um i think i have one quick thing i want us to discuss before we end today if that's okay yeah um, Yoram, I put a link into the document. Can you click on that? So I feel like it would be remiss of us to open up our podcast again without discussing the big thing that has been happening in the world of AI in the last couple of months, I guess now. Yeah. Maybe it's the arrival of ChatGPT 
on the scenes. And this is, you're, maybe you can describe it best. I guess you're fully up to date with what's happening there. No, I mean, it's ChatGPT that's now out. Um, that's the big thing that yep. everybody's crazy about. And it's like it's an iteration on the GPT-3 um, model that's been out for a bit longer. Mm-hmm. And so now this has like a different training set. It's more based on conversations and... I mean, I think everybody has come across these things now. It's it's predictive text. Like you give it a prompt, and then it predicts what a good answer would be. And it's yeah, like I guess depending it's... on your on your angle, you could say like it's just doing like fancy statistics on them, or others say like it's a neural network and it's like very cleverly understanding the the purpose of your prompt and then responding um, to that. It's pretty cool. I mean, I was trying to do one of the ones where you try to work out if a story is being told by the chatbot or by a student of different ages. So like a, you know, Mm -hmm. eight year old or a four year old or something like telling a story and trying to guess which is which. And I think like sometimes it was kind of clear who was telling the story, but sometimes it absolutely wasn't clear, especially because um, like, I think the, the chatbot sort of had this, it can be a little bit too precise, but you can then encourage it to edit its mistakes into it. So in these yep. stories, they had like said, okay, now go back and make some spelling mistakes. No, Now go back and change a couple of words for their homophones. So, you know, you're using your instead of your or there instead of there, these kind of things, which then trick your mind into definitely thinking it was a human and they were testing sort of experts like so they were getting a teacher of eight-year-olds to see whether it was an eight-year-old writing the story or whether it was the the chatbot and it was not always clear and of course this is now a question that has come into academia as well as far as what happens when they these AI programs can effectively write papers. So there is a paper that's been published at least one where Chat GP I can't I can never say Chat GPT. GPT. There is a paper that's now been published at least one I've seen where Chat GPT is a co-author. Although that paper is specifically about the use of Chat GPT. So I think it's kind of a little bit meta, but there is this discussion about now how this should be incorporated. Should it be acknowledged or should it be author? I think we're leaning towards it should be acknowledged, but this is kind of something that's happening in the academic community right now. Um, But anyway, what I was sharing with Yoram now is this fun dialogue where somebody, Kalmon Lab on Medium, we'll put the link in, has had a chat GPT produce a fictional exchange between a professor and a student who didn't put controls into their experiments. So the first prompt is just write a dialogue between a professor and a student who performed an experiment without including controls. And that sort of goes quite nicely, I would say. Um, Yoram, did you get a chance to look through that? Yeah. Do you want to... Do you want to... Um, we can we can read them, but I don't know if we should read all three of them. I think we should only read the third one, to be yes. honest. So I think like in the first one, the professor's response is, it's okay, John, we all make mistakes, but it's important to remember the importance of controls in ex- scientific experimentation. So that's number one. And then the person says, okay, that's good, but I think the professor was too soft on the student. It's not okay to forget about controls. Can you revise the dialogue to reflect this? So then... We get a revision and it's quite similar. It's sort of still like, you know, it is important to put controls in and this is a basic principle of scientific experimentation. And then (laughs) the third iteration is make the professor angrier. 
John, what were you thinking? What, what, what do you mean, Professor? You forgot to include controls in your experiment. How could you possibly think that was acceptable? I, I, I'm sorry, Professor. I, I didn't realize it was a requirement. <laughs> I think our acting is so bad. Not ri- realizing it was a requirement is no excuse. Controls are a fundamental part of scientific experimentation. Without them, our results are meaningless. I understand, Professor. I'll make sure to include controls in all my future experiments. You had better, John. This kind of careless mistake is unacceptable in scientific research. It undermines the credibility of our work and undermines the trust of our colleagues and the public. You need to be more careful and more meticulous in your work from now on, John. Do you understand me? Yes, Professor. I understand. Good. Make sure you do better next time. And now I have to go and cry in a shower from the PTSD <laughs> that I got. Uh, I did add an ex- I did add an extra John in there for emphasis. To be fair, I also um, took some artistic um, exaggeration. But yeah, it's it's a continuum <laughs> that I don't know. It's- but what I find about these stories, like I played around with ChatGPT a little bit. Um, nowadays, like whenever I try to to log into it, it's always at capacity. I think it's yeah, being used by on. marketers and and SEO people, and it's like. I, I think some bad stuff will happen, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, <laughs> that's going to be on your tombstone. You're like, I think some bad stuff will happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I always found it, it was always on right between the line, uh, or like uh, right on the line between very funny and also very boring. Like mm-hmm. I, I had a very good time like while playing around with it but then i would read it back again the next day like i saved some of the things and some of the outputs and was like it's not actually like it's not completely unfunny but it's also not that great it's somewhere in this like weird in between yeah that's exactly. exactly the point it's it's boring enough to trick you into thinking it's normal like that's that's the terrifying part here it depends. Like if it's, it's a, if it's a document that usually is boring, then it can mimic that very well. But when it comes, f- like for example, I try to ha- like have it write like song lyrics, mm. and most of them, like they didn't even rhyme, uh, neither in English or German. I uh, and could you ask it? But did you iterate? Did you ask it to yeah, make? Yeah, I said rhyme? like please, ah. please, please make it rhyme, and it was just, and it would always fall back to like the same phrases. It, um, because I mean, it's just predictive text, right? Like. It's take it's looking at the data set that it has and it with a cer- certain like probability some words follow other words when you want to go into a, a certain direction and so it would within like the same song always go back to like the same four lines in like slightly different wording and yeah I don't know like it's there's like there's definitely some really cool applications there like I don't like there's some some cool stuff there but i was also sort of from its sort of the creativity level many people are saying oh now you can write like tv shows with it and and everything i think this would make very bland tv shows if all of the dialogue would be like written by ai yeah i mean that's that's always the argument right like the computers can't do the creative side of things but yeah i I mean that they will i think where we will see stuff like this is for example like news agency um post like when they they send out i don't know what's it called like a a press release or something um and then paraphrase (laughs) a press release for your like piece of journalism that you want to do and then maybe have a human go over it quickly and like correct some minor things but like the the bulk of the work is done automatically i think for this stuff it has value and can be used but for sort of the 
like make make it click yes but make it clickbaity like yes make it more sensational <laughs> yeah and that's where i think with the bad stuff will come we will it will be so hard to find like good information on google because all many of like the the stuff that you already get now when you look for whatever question you have um you type that in and then you get all of these like search engine optimized search results that are not actually helpful but they just rank high because they know what to do mm. for the google algorithm now they can mimic even better stuff that humans could write and so now i mean there's already like technology in the works of of detecting detecting this stuff and removing it from search results but yeah one of my friends said that they found it useful for like kind of uh negotiating social niceties like if you have to say something and you want to say it politely you can ask it to write something that's like you know how do i politely tell the person that no i can't manage this And then it will give you something and then you yeah. can, again, you have to look over it with a human eye, but those kind of things that are awkward and also maybe that are like a bit culturally sensitive. So I'm not sure how it would work crossing cultures, but like, yeah, but specifically for like people in English, like who have to work in an English speaking culture, but are not first language English for them. It that could be really, help, right? really useful. Yeah. yeah. So this was the situation. This is also like not first language. I mean, a fluent person, but like, yeah, I was, I think that can help with these kind of phrasing of nicety anyway that's a different conversation <laughs> for many other different days in the future i think it's time for us to wrap up today but you're maybe you brought us a fact about a cat yes cat fact And it's a it's a short cat fact. Um, something that we've already known from other evidence is how we domesticated cats, and we believe that sometime, like some thousands uh, of years ago, um, cats came to humans because the humans had grains, uh, and where the grains are are where mice, and so the cats were hunting the mice, and then the humans were like, "Hey, this is good," and I would also feed the cats, and then the cats would think oh this is actually quite comfortable and then it would stay together the question was is that something that happened multiple times um throughout different cultures or not maybe only one time and now they did some extensive dna analysis of different breeds of cats uh, and were mapping microsatellites and snips so single nucleotide polymorphism so little markers on the dna um that you can follow along when you build like a phylogenetic tree so a relationship genetic relationship of these different cats and i found they could all link them back to like one common ancestor so, so to one common domestication event and so that means that sometimes um Uh, uh, a long time ago in the Fertile Crescent region um, between the, I think, Euphrates and Tigris rivers in the Middle East. Uh, uh, Tigris and Euphrates, is, I think, in, in English. Um, this is so pretty early on in human civilization. This is, was sort of like the starting point for like agriculture and many like ground... Mm -hmm breaking things for for human culture in general and cats were parts of part of that cats uh were domesticated then and then from then on followed humans along and spread across the world as sort of companions of humans um so that the, the house cats and that's something that we can now see with science that we had one major domestication event and oh, that's really cool huh yeah they all come from that one event so that's it that's the show for today And if you want to get in touch with us, we are now also on Mastodon. I started um, a Mastodon account at, uh, at Plants and Pipettes, 
at podcasts.social um, so <laughs> you can follow us there if you are fed up with Twitter and you want, don't want to be on Twitter anymore but you can still follow us and reach out to us on Twitter as well that's at Plants by Pets um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Plants and Pipettes. And we have a website which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And that's all fresh and new, so make sure to check that out. Uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening. Rate us. <laughs> do the things that you do, like whatever is, they do nowadays in these call to actions. Um, and. Europe. <laughs> that was so half fast. <laughs> do whatever you do you know yeah. go about your life if you want to rate us that would be great <laughs> yes um and if you just want to listen that's fine uh you are your own person uh, who am i to tell you what to do yeah but like <sighs> if you do want to only listen and and not rate then you're going to have to listen like at very high volume without earphones so that other people also hear that's that's the service <laughs> you'll be doing for us really like aggressively spread our podcast throughout the world <laughs> Yes, please do that. And we will talk to you again in two weeks' time. So until then, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.